Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please stand. We'll begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon thee the heavenly God as upon a father and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Our speaker tonight, Professor Brendan McGuire, is a Catholic historian specializing in classical and medieval periods. He received his doctoral degree in medieval history from St. Louis University and in recent years has presented scholarly research on various historical topics at prestigious regional, national, and international conferences. He has taught both history and classical languages at the undergraduate level, and he is currently a professor of history at Christendom College. Dr. McGuire has been a frequent presenter for the Institute of Catholic Culture, and we are glad to have him back. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Brendan McGuire. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, Deacon Sabatino. Thank you all so much for your welcome back here. It's great to be back and see so many familiar faces. And I know that so many of you guys prayed for me as I was going through cancer treatment for all those months. And uh, it was a long road, and I couldn't have made it without all of you guys and your prayer and, and support. Deacon Sabatino really went the extra mile like a good Christian. He, he spent many days often driving me between Front Royal and Charlottesville, Virginia. When I couldn't walk, he would load me into his van and drive me down there for doctor's appointments and stuff like that. So he's doing great work here with the Institute, and we should all continue to give him our support. So thank you, Deacon Sabatino. Tonight we're talking about St. James, the legend of St. James and the history of Catholic Spain. The legend of St. James is connected with the history of Catholic Spain in a very interesting way. Now, this, this is kind of a, a historical puzzle for people, because to the best of our knowledge, as far as scholarly research is concerned, and as far as the traditions of the early church are concerned, St. James never set foot in Spain. <laughs> okay. uh, St. James's martyrdom is it's the only martyrdom that's recounted in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Okay, we're talking about St. James the Greater, who was martyred by King Herod Agrippa I, by tradition, this is occurring in around 44 A.D. So in around 44 A.D. in Jerusalem, right? And according to the, the traditions that we can detect in the early church, there's no evidence that St. James ever left Jerusalem after the resurrection of Christ. And there's not really any evidence uh, that he certainly ever set foot on the other side of the Mediterranean. And so where do we get this connection between St. James and Catholic Spain, right? Right? 
Well, it, it's really interesting because when we look at sources from Catholic Spain, the legend of St. James's connection with Catholic Spain, uh, it's already fully formed by the 12th century. Right? Uh, if you look at chronicles from the 12th century, particularly the Historia Compostelana, which was uh, written by a bishop by the name of Diego Helmirez, right? Helmirez, as the Castilians might say. Uh, this bishop, he, he writes in his legend a really interesting story about St. James, which everybody in Spain believed in the Middle Ages. And this legend about St. James was really connected with the crusading spirit that united the Christian kingdoms in the Iberian Peninsula against their Islamic adversaries in the 12th century. Now, what is the legend? There's a few key parts to it. Number one is that St. James took a break from preaching in Palestine around 40 AD or so and traveled to the Iberian Peninsula, Roman Hispania. And he was preaching there on the banks of the Ebro River when the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to him. He received an apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's Nuestra Señora del Pilar, Our Lady of the Pillar. Okay. And there's a shrine there on the banks of the Ebro of Our Lady of the Pillar, etc. Right? So the legend is that St. James himself personally preached in Spain during his lifetime. After the apparition of Our Lady of the Pillar, St. James departed from Spain, crossed the Mediterranean again, returned to Palestine, and was executed by King Herod Agrippa. Right? That's part one of the legend. Part two of the legend is that after his return to Palestine and his execution, the relics of the martyr and apostle, St. James the Greater, were then transferred either by his disciples or by angels or by some other kind of miraculous event, were transferred from Palestine to Spain. All right? And there's a lot, uh, some variation in the Middle Ages in how this legend is presented to us. Right? But th what, they all, what all the kind of examples of the legend have in common here is that through some means, usually miraculous, the relics of the martyr and apostle St. James were transferred back to Spain where they disappeared and went into hiding for 800 years until they were rediscovered in the reign of Alfonso II of Asturias around 842 at Compostela. Right? Now, what's historical and what's legendary here? Well, it's interesting. The, the whole idea that St. James preached in Spain, the whole idea that, he, that his relics were transferred there by some means, either natural or supernatural, right? These things certainly are, they're not seen as being verifiable by modern historical scholarship. The last time modern scholars tried to verify and defend the legend of St. James, it was actually the Jesuit Bolandists in the 16th and 17th century. They made a serious scholarly effort to verify that the relics of St. James really had been deposited in Compostela, and they really believed it. And so did Leo XIII, right? In several of his 19th century uh, encyclicals, Leo XIII makes reference to the relics of St. James at Compostela as being the true historical relics of St. James. Nevertheless, the church never claims to really to speak with infallibility about w whether this or that relic is the true relic. I mean, keep in mind, in the Middle Ages, you have a proliferation of relics. You often have competing relics. You have people stealing each other's relics. Okay, right? it's, it's a big deal in the Middle Ages. Right? This is how you, you end up with four or five different lances that pierce the side of Christ you know, floating around the Mediterranean world in the Middle Ages. So the, the church doesn't claim to exercise infallibility when speaking about relics like this. For understanding the history of medieval Spain, right, the point is not whether we can verify the truth of this legend. The point is that people believed it. 
And for us as scholars and as, as historians of medieval Spain, what's important is not so much whether we can verify that St. James really preached in Spain or whether or not his relics are really there. The important thing is the way in which the legend of St. James was deployed and used by the civil and religious leaders of Catholic Spain in the 12th century in order to unify the Christian kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula behind a single cause, and of course in order to ultimately reconquer the Iberian Peninsula from the Muslims. Now this unification of the Christian kingdoms of Spain was not an easy task. Frequently when people look at history, they look at history with something called hindsight bias. I don't know if, if that's a term that people are familiar with. What hindsight bias means, is it means looking at history backwards. In other words, the Nazis lost World War II, so they must have always been losing World War II, right? or something like that. Or the South lost the Civil War, so they must have been doomed to lose the Civil War. Right? We look at history knowing what happened. Right? We look backwards at history, where we look at it in reverse, and we tend to forget that the outcome of these events wasn't clear to people who were participating in them. Now, the, our understanding of the Reconquista, right, that is to say the Christian reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula, right, is something that in modern times is very much afflicted with hindsight bias. Right? This is partly because modern Spaniards, they see the Reconquista as being really part of their national identity. So the idea in modern Spain is that the Christians in the Iberian Peninsula waged a steady, war for over 700 years, right, for almost 800 years, which gradually, over time, inevitably pushed the Muslims back across the Straits of Gibraltar and back into Africa and recovered Spain for its rightful Spanish owners. This, of course, is an example of hindsight bias. For medieval Christians, uh, prior to the 12th century, prior to the introduction of the crusading spirit into Spain, there was no notion that anyone was engaged in any kind of reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula. As often as not, the Christian kings of Iberia were at war with one another, as with the Muslims. And so what we're going to see is that the legend of St. James plays a crucial role. It plays a crucial role in unifying the Christians of Spain behind a religious cause. Now... We've begun, as, as good storytellers always do, in medias res. We kind of jumped into the middle of things. Uh, but it's good for us to go back a little bit and look at the, the history of Christian and Islamic Spain, right? because the history itself is very complex. The Iberian Peninsula is really fascinating. When you study medieval Iberia, you're studying a very complicated world because you're studying a world where Islamic and Christian states coexisted. You're studying a world where Islamic and Christian populations lived in each other's kingdoms. And, of course, you also have large Jewish populations under both Islamic and Christian rule in medieval Iberia. It's a very complicated world. Right? So scholars have often looked for simplified paradigms to explain medieval Iberia. Now, some scholars favor a paradigm called convivencia. Right? They emphasize the fact that you have different communities living together in peace and harmony and love. Right? <laughs> Other scholars have emphasized the paradigm of reconquista or the paradigm of inquisition or the paradigm of jihad. Right? In other words, a paradigm of hostility in which Christian and Islamic rulers persecuted minority communities under their control, in which Christian and Islamic rulers waged religious war ruthlessly against one another, in which Christian and Islamic rulers ruthlessly persecuted the Jews under them. Right? So how are these two visions of medieval Spain compatible? 
Right? They're obviously not, because they're both too oversimplified. The history of Spain is much, much more complex than that. Right? And of course, there are going to be times when convivencia dominates. There are going to be times when hostility and violence dominate. Right? But all in all, it's a very complex history. Now, let's go back to the beginning. When do you first have something that can be called Catholic Spain? Well, of course, you're, you, when you for, can first start speaking of Catholic Spain, it's when you can start speaking of the Roman Empire being Catholic. You remember the, the great Roman Emperor Theodosius was a Spaniard. Right? His family held great lands in Spain. Theodosius's father was a Roman general who had been executed in the time of Valentinian and Valens, who were also Christian emperors. Now, Theodosius himself was chosen to be a co-emperor by Valentinian's son, Gratian, Okay, after the Battle of Adrianople. So we're talking late 4th century or so, 378 AD is when you have Theodosius becoming Roman emperor. So we can start thinking of Catholic Spain in that sense. But Spain undergoes a facelift, does it not, when it's conquered by the Visigoths. Of course, the Visigoths, barbarians who were Arian religiously, in the 5th century obtained basically complete control of the Iberian Peninsula and set up a Visigothic kingdom there. Now, in the time of the Visigoths, we see a classic paradigm that you see elsewhere in the Roman world when you have barbarian rulers who are Arians and a Roman population which is Catholic, which is that the rulers and the subjects don't identify with each other at all. So you have a Visigothic kingdom in Spain where there are problems with stability, there are economic, social, and political challenges, which largely come from the fact that the Visigothic rulers of Spain from the 5th century until late in the 6th century were religiously and therefore socially and politically distinct from their Roman subjects. That changes at the Third Council of Toledo, which is 589. The Third Council of Toledo, the Visigothic kings officially adopted and endorsed the Catholic faith and abandoned their Arianism. So now we can start speaking of Catholic Spain again, late in the sixth century, right? Now this is crucial. When you have barbarian kings adopting Catholicism, it allows them to identify with their subjects. It allows for the, the forging of a sense of unity between rulers and subjects. And so instead of a, a Roman population subject to abusive Visigothic rule, now you have an entire people who identify themselves as Goths, which doesn't happen if you don't have the conversion of the Goths to Catholicism. Now, an example of such a figure, a figure with a Roman background who is profoundly Catholic, very much a figure of late antiquity due to his learning and his education, but who also, in some sense, identified himself as a Goth, is Isidore of Seville. Late 6th, early 7th century figure, Isidore of Seville. Isidore of Seville is, is one of these last holdouts of late antique education in the Western world. When you think of men in the Latin West who are the last representatives of late antique education, of course, you think of Boethius, you think of Cassiodorus, and you think of Isidore of Seville. Now, Isidore of Seville wrote a, a great work in praise of Spain, which was meant to glorify the Catholic kingdom of the Visigoths. But it was based on classical literary models. And herein we can see the, the wedding of classical culture with the culture of the Visigoths. Listen to Isidore of Seville in, in Praise of Spain. You don't have to catch the literary references. The point is to notice that they're there. This is what Isidore says about Spain. He says, Altheus yields to you in horses and Clytumnus in cattle, 
Although Alpheus, regarded as sacred for his Olympic victories, exercised fleet chariots on the track of Pisa, and Clytumnus once sacrificed great oxen as victims on the capital. You do not need the fields of Etruria, for you have more abundant pasturage, nor do you marvel at the groves of Malorcus, for you have palm trees in plenty, nor do your horses run less swiftly than the Elian chariots. You are fertile with overflowing rivers, you are tawny with gold-flowing torrents, you have a spring that fathered a horse. You have fleeces dyed with native purples that glow with Tyrian crimson. Listen to all those literary references. He's showing off. Right? <laughs> He's showing off his education. Well, what's the purpose of those literary references? The purpose is to say, we are Romans as well as Goths. We are at once Catholic and Roman and Gothic. Right? So that's Visigothic Spain. Now... The history of the Visigothic kingdom comes to uh, a tragic and traumatic and very, very sudden end when Visigothic Spain is conquered by the Muslims at the beginning of the 8th century. So this, this is dramatic. Now, if you're trying to peg this somewhere in the history of Islam, remember the death of the Prophet Muhammad is roughly 632. So if we follow the classical Islamic chronology, the death of the Prophet Muhammad is 632, the death of his first successor, Abu Bakr, would be 634 or so. Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali, the Rashidun, the rightly guided Khulafa, that is the rightly guided successors of the Prophet. The last of them, Ali, dies in 661. So by that point, less than three decades after the death of the Prophet, the Islamic Empire now extends eastward across Mesopotamia, across Iran, all the way you know, deep into Central Asia. It extends westward across Syria, Palestine, and Egypt, and it extends deep into Western North Africa. Now, the Islamic regime would be expanded even further under the, the successors of the Rashidun, the successors of the rightly guided caliphs, and those are the Umayyads. The Umayyad Caliphate was the dynasty that ruled the entire Islamic world from 661 to 750. It was under the Umayyad caliphs that Spain would be conquered. Now, the, the story of the conquest of Spain, we get a, a pretty hilarious version of the, the story of the conquest of Spain in the Hadith collection of Ibn Abd al-Hakam, right, who is an Islamic historian. Now, what, what, is a, what is a Hadith collection? A Hadith collection is a collection of sayings. So Islamic historians often, uh, they often told the early history of their people in the form of books of sayings. And the way these things would be supported is they would be supported uh, with a, a string of transmission called an isnad. Isnad is a, a string of transmission where you say, so-and-so was told by so-and-so, who was told by so-and-so, who was told by so-and-so, who was a companion of the prophet, that the prophet said X. Now, there are, there are diverse hadith collections. You know, there are, there are Shiite hadith collections. There are Abbasid hadith collections. Deciding which hadiths are real and which ones are not, is, uh, it's considered a science in Islamic theology. But one of the masters of hadith in the 9th century was the figure of Ibn Abd al-Hakam. Okay. Now, Ibn Abd al-Hakam, it's a little bit of a tongue twister. Uh, he tells the story this way. He gives the chain of transmission. He says, so-and-so told me, that so-and-so told him, that so-and-so told him, that so-and-so told him, that here's what happened in the year 711. In the year 711, the Umayyad Caliphate had extended westward as far as Tangiers on the Moroccan coast. 
And that's where they butted up against the Visigoths. Now, the Visigothic lord of Ceuta on the African side of the Straits of Gibraltar was a guy named Julian. Okay, so Julian was the lord of, of Ceuta, and he was the lord of the Spanish territory opposite Ceuta as well. So he ruled both sides of the Straits of Gibraltar as a vassal of King Roderick, who was the king of the Visigoths. Now, Julian decided he didn't like Roderick after a while. He had a reason for not liking Roderick. Uh, he sent his daughter to Roderick's court to become educated, and instead of becoming educated, she became pregnant. Uh, yeah, so... Julian wasn't happy with King Roderick, uh, in particular because Roderick, Roderick was kind of the father of the child. So, <laughs> yeah. so Julian decides, you know what, there's only one way I can get revenge on Roderick, and that is I can bring the Arabs across the Straits of Gibraltar and have them conquer Visigothic Spain. That's what we're told by Ibn Abd al-Hakam. It was personal revenge. Okay. What happens then is Julian goes and he talks to Tariq ibn al-Ziyad. Now, who is that guy? Tariq ibn al-Ziyad was actually the general who was in charge of Umayyad forces in northwestern Africa. And he had been deputized by a guy named Musa. Okay. Musa, which is the Arabic for Moses. Uh, he had been deputized by Musa to kind of govern western North Africa in Musa's absence. Musa himself uh, had gone back to Damascus, to the Umayyad capital, because he was kind of tired of western North Africa. I think Damascus was a little bit nicer. And the Umayyads had, they had nice public baths and nice palaces, and they made ice cream in the desert and stuff like that. So, uh, so Musa went back to Syria to hang out, because it was a lot nicer there. And he left Tariq, Tariq ibn al-Ziyad, in charge of northwestern Africa. So Tariq gets this embassy from the embittered Julian. And uh, Julian says, I will take you across the straits to Spain. In the Arab chronicle, it says, al-Andalus. Al-Andalus is the word for the Iberian Peninsula that occurs again and again in these Arabic chronicles. And he says, I will take you across to al-Andalus. And Tariq says, okay, how do I know you're not tricking me? And Julian says, you know, I'll prove I'm not tricking you. I'll give you a couple of diplomatic hostages. And Tariq says, uh, who? What, what diplomatic hostages do you have? And Julian goes, uh, I've got two other daughters. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he sends his other daughters to Tariq. Tariq brings his army right up to the straits, and they basically bring them across in boats, one after another, going back and forth like a ferry boat between Spain and Africa. And nobody pays any attention because they, they think it's just merchant shipping or something like that. It never occurs to anyone, never occurs to anyone that you'd be witnessing an Islamic invasion of the Iberian Peninsula. So in, in the middle of campaigning season, in the late spring of the year 711, this huge Islamic army assembles on the shores of Spain and marches towards the southern city of Cordoba. Right, where they slaughter a Visigothic army there. And then they marched on towards Toledo, the capital of Visigothic Spain, and conquered it and took the city. Now, to all appearances, the Islamic conquest of the Iberian Peninsula was extremely rapid. According to Ibn Abd al-Hakam, we have a very, very rapid conquest. In the course of a few years, they've marched all the way up to the Pyrenees, and they're crossing the Pyrenees and raiding Frankish Gaul. Right? They establish a, a protectorate over Septimania, south, you know, southern France, and the, the eastern corner of the Pyrenees. In other words, it, it only takes them maybe seven or eight years, according to the Arabic chronicles, to sweep across all of Spain and demolish all Visigothic resistance. The Visigothic kingdom collapses quickly. Right. 
From this point on, Al-Andalus becomes the province, an outlying province, of a much, much larger Umayyad empire. Right? Now, the ultimate fate of Tariq and Musa and these other figures is um, kind of interesting. They all ended up going back to Damascus to squabble at the court of the Umayyad Caliph. And they're, what they're squabbling over was, is the incredibly uh, rich spoils of the conquest of Al-Andalus. Uh, and while they were doing this, they appointed a guy named Abdelaziz, who is Musa's uh, son. And Abdelaziz was the governor of Al-Andalus, and he married Roderick's daughter. Okay, so now the, the chronicle of Ibn Abd al-Hakam concludes the story by telling us the, the sad end of Abd al-Aziz. It tells us that Abd al-Aziz, he had married this, this Christian princess, and the Christian princess uh, told Abd al-Aziz, you know what, it's really annoying how when all of these other Arabs come in to talk to you, they don't bow down to you the way that people used to bow down to my father, King Roderick. You know, when other Visigothic nobles would come in to, to talk to the Visigothic king, they would do this, all this ceremonial and abase themselves before him and bow down. Nobody does that when they come in to talk to you. I think it's because you're not as much of a man as my father was. <laughs> now, that doesn't go over so well with uh, Abdelaziz. So what Abdelaziz does is he decides to build a little door that's about waist-high in the side of, of his palace, right, in, in you know, the area where he has audiences. So anybody who comes to see Abdelaziz has to bow down at the waist to come through this door. Abdelaziz said, oh yeah? Who's a man now? Right? Now, the, the other Arabic nobles don't like this at all. Okay? <laughs> they don't like this at all. And so they start a rumor they start a rumor that Abdelaziz is becoming a closet Christian. Now, this doesn't go over so well, right? And so you actually had two very pious, very devout Muslims. One of them was named Habib, and the other one was named uh, Ziad. Now, Habib and Ziad, what they, what they decided to do was come up with a plan to assassinate Abdelaziz. Because they said, ah, you know what? He's becoming a secret Christian. He's making us bow down at the waist when we come in. So what they did was they went to the, uh, the guy who was the Mo'ezin. You guys know what a Mo'ezin is? It's the guy who chants the call to prayer from the minaret. So they told him at like 3 o'clock in the morning, go up in the minaret and start chanting the call to prayer. So the guy goes up in the minaret. He starts chanting the call to prayer in the middle of the night. Uh, Abdelaziz wakes up in a panic, throws his clothes on, runs to the mosque. While he's running to the mosque, he realizes it's kind of dark out. This is kind of weird. Uh, and then he says something to the Mo'ezin, like, you're a little early with the call to prayer. The sun is not up yet. But all right, whatever. He gets into the mosque. He starts reading from the Quran. And while he's reading from the Quran, these two guys, Habib and Ziyad, come up with swords and try to chop his head off. Uh, now, Abdelaziz sees them coming at him with swords, and he realizes something is seriously wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> he, he turns around and runs. He leaves the mosque. He runs back to his palace and tries to hide under a bush in his garden. So he's, he's in his garden, hiding under a bush. And then the, it was actually Ziyad who found him hiding under the bush. And he said, all right, come out. We're going to kill you. And Abdelaziz says, no, 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 don't kill me. I'll give you... Anything you want. And he says, no, nah, I'm just going to kill you. Uh, so he kills him. Uh, <laughs> so that's the end. But the, now, we, we get all of these details in Ibn Abd al-Hakam, including what they did next. Now, what they did next is, remember, Abdelaziz's father, Musa, is in Damascus with the caliph. Right? So what they did, the assassins, is they chopped off the head of Abdelaziz, they preserved it in salt, put it in a package, and shipped it to Damascus. All right, so it got to the court of the caliph, and the caliph opened it in the presence of Musa. 
And he said, do you recognize this face? It was the face of his son, kind of you know, looking a little, you know, a little bit worse for wear. But anyway, <laughs> the trip across the Mediterranean is a little rough on you know, severed heads. But anyway, unpacks the head. And uh, the response of Musa was very interesting. According to the Hadith collection, he said, yes, I recognize him. I recognize him as a man known for his fasting and for his praying, right? And upon him be the curse of God if the man who killed him was a better man than he. But that's the end of Abdelaziz, but the beginning of Umayyad rule in Spain. Now, as we can see, right, as we can see from these stories of assassination and intrigue in the Umayyad governor's court in Spain, Umayyad Spain in the early years was a pretty chaotic place. Umayyad Spain was a land of factionalism. It was a land where the, the court was just a, a den of intrigue. You had different factions there within the Islamic court that were always at each other's throats. Keep this in mind. You had Syrian Muslim troops who were associated with the Umayyad dynasty. You had Arabian troops who were associated with other branches of the Prophet's tribe, particularly the Hashemite clan. Right? On top of that, you had... Berbers from Africa who were recent converts to Islam. Mawali, converts to Islam. Now, the, the tension in the Umayyad Caliphate in general between Arabs and converts to Islam was tremendous, right? And it ends up reaching a boiling point in the middle of the 8th century. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But keep in mind, Islamic Spain in the early years, it's a land of intrigue. It's a land of tremendous confusion. It's a land where you also have the church having to confront the question prudentially of what do you do now that you're subject to Islamic law, right? The Catholic Church in Spain would find this to be a very, very difficult decision to confront. Now, the first, or I should say, some of the earliest evidence that we have for how the Visigothic Church dealt with being under Islamic rule, it comes from a somewhat later chronicle. It comes from a 9th century chronicle, which tells the story of the legend of how the first Christian kingdom in Spain was established in the aftermath of the Islamic conquest. The earliest Christian kingdom that we can trace, right, and that was established and defined in opposition to the Islamic conquerors of the Iberian Peninsula is the kingdom of the Asturias. Right? So the kingdom of the Asturias was founded in a very, very mountainous region of Spain called the Picos de Europa, right, the, the peaks of Europe, right? very mountainous, very treacherous, very difficult terrain. And this is where some of the, some of the last holdouts among the Visigothic warrior nobility had retreated as the Muslims swept across Iberia like an irresistible tsunami, right? Some of these guys had retreated to the caves and mountain passes, uh, which were judged to be pretty impregnable, pretty inaccessible, right? And it turned out to be a great place to flee. Now, according to legend, the leader of these guys was named in Spanish Pelayo, which is, it comes from the Latin name Pelagius, right? So this man, Pelagius, or Pelayo, he had been a shield-bearer for the Visigothic kings, and he was descended from a line of hereditary shield-bearers, right? And it's in the legend of Pelayo that we detect some of the, the earliest traces of the spirit of Reconquista in Spanish history. Right, the legend of Pelayo is this, and this is, this is how the legend was known about a century and a half later in the ninth century. The legend is this, that in 714, when the armies of Islam had reached the Pyrenees Mountains, 
they found these holdouts up in the Picos de Europa, and they sent troops up there to subdue them. Right? In fact, we're told that the Umayyad governors of Iberia, of Al-Andalus, sent an army that numbered over 180,000 men into the mountains to find the, these last bands of holdouts. Now, Palayo and his followers were just a handful of men up here hiding out in, in a mountain cave in a, what actually became a, a traditional Marian shrine later on in the history of, of the Asturias. And so what the Muslims did is they surrounded Palayo's hideout with, a, according to the Chronicle, a massive army, an army that numbered in the six figures. Now, just to give you a sense of how big an army we're talking about here, uh, I, I think an army that numbers in the six figures, that doesn't make a big enough impression on us because we're used to modern armies. Right? We're used to you know, World War II type numbers where you have 100,000 men here, half a million men there, another 1.2 million men over here. Right? You, you just didn't have that in the medieval world. In the ancient world, it was only the great empires that could call upon armies numbering in the six figures, only with great difficulty and only very rarely. So someone like Xerxes or something like that could come up maybe with an army that numbered in the six figures, although Herodotus's numbers are a little bit dicey. But anyway, it's very, very rare in the Middle Ages to see an army that numbers more than a couple thousand men. I mean, an army of seven, eight, nine thousand men was huge. An army of 20,000 men was unheard of. But we're told that the Umayyads sent over 180,000 soldiers up to the Picos de Europa, and that's where they found Pelayo. Now, when they found Pelayo, they sent someone up there to talk to him. They sent someone up to do a little bit of negotiation with Pelayo. And who is it? It's a Visigothic Catholic bishop, Bishop Opa. Right, this infamous figure, he's sent up to negotiate with Palau, and he tells Palau about all the benefits that could be enjoyed by coming down and surrendering to the Islamic army, just coming down, embracing your position as a Themi, right, as a protected religious minority in Islamic society, yeah, and he tells him, well, you have no chance to hold out up here. The entire army of the people of the Goths could not resist these guys, and you expect to resist up in your little mountain. Palau's response was legendary. He says to the bishop, have you not read in the divine scriptures that the church of God is compared to a mustard seed and that it will be raised up again through divine mercy? And the bishop said, it is written thus. And Palio said, Christ is our hope that through this little mountain which you see, the well-being of Spain and the army of the Gothic people will be restored. I have faith that the promise of the Lord which was spoken through David will be fulfilled in us. I will visit their iniquities with the rod and their sins with scourges, but I will not remove my mercy from them. Now, therefore, trusting in the mercy of Jesus Christ, I despise this multitude and I'm not afraid of it. As for the battle with which you threaten us, we have for ourselves an advocate in the presence of the Father, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is capable of liberating us from these few. The bishop returned to the army and said, Go forth and fight. You heard how he responded to me. I can see by his determination that you will never have a covenant of peace with him unless it is achieved through the vengeance of the sword. Now, according to the, the ninth century chronicle, the Islamic army then attacked Palayo. Palayo and his men fearlessly came down and somehow managed, Chuck Norris style, to slaughter 120,000 Muslims. Now, <laughs> but that wasn't it. That wasn't it. You know, after Palayo and his men slaughtered only about 120,000, of these guys. The rest of the, the other 67,000 Muslims retreated, but then God made an earthquake happen which threw them off the mountain so that they all died. 
So every last one of them died, according to the Chronicle. <laughs> now, is there a grain of truth in the Chronicle? Sure there is, right? Sure there is. Sure there's, there, there's a kernel of historical truth here, right? Of course there's a kernel of historical truth, because we know that the kingdom of the Asturias grew as though from a mustard seed. It grew from the Picos de Europa to embrace Galicia and the lands of what is now northwestern Spain. And that became the first stronghold of Christian resistance against the Muslims. But in the early years of Islamic Spain, there was no question of Reconquista, right? There was no question of somehow rolling back the tide of Islamic conquest. It was simply a matter of holding out, and it was simply a matter of preventing different Christian princes from destroying one another and being mopped up. Now, in the meantime, right, in the meantime, when the Umayyads had barely had time to consolidate their control of Spain, it's important to note, there was a dramatic political revolution that took place which changed the whole face of the Islamic world. And that's smack in the middle of the 8th century. Right in the middle of the 8th century, you have an event called the Abbasid Revolution. Now, we're not going to go into all the specifics of the Abbasid Revolution, but it's important to note that what the Abbasid Revolution does for Spain is it results in the severing of Islamic Spain from the rest of the Islamic world. Islamic Spain becomes an independent entity, no longer a portion of the great Islamic empire anymore. Now, the reason why that happens is this. What the Abbasid Revolution was fueled by is it was fueled by general anger and discontent against the Umayyad dynasty. Now, this discontent really had three sources. The Umayyads had become unpopular. Number one, they were unpopular because of their lavish lifestyle. The Umayyad caliphs were, by many Islamic chroniclers, called them kings. Why? Calling them kings, that's an insult. Because you're saying they're not caliphs, they're not successors of the prophet, they're just kings, like any other secular king. Right? Why? Why was there this disgust with the lifestyle of the Umayyads? Well, basically because the Umayyads sort of lived like, you might, you might expect the, this kind of stereotype of oriental despots to live. Right? They built spectacular palaces for themselves in the desert, they had huge harems, there were some Umayyads who were known to have two different kinds of harems, uh, if they went both ways, right? They um, you know, enjoyed tremendous luxury for themselves. The, they brought snow down from the mountains to make sherbet for themselves in their desert retreats, which they went to great expense and great effort to irrigate and you know, create these luscious hanging gardens and things like that. So you, you had a, what was called a piety-minded opposition that developed to the Umayyads, right? A piety-minded opposition that was centered among the Arabs who had conquered Iran. The Arab conquerors of Khurasan and northern Iran. That's where you had an especially a strong disgust with the, the lavish and un-Islamic lifestyle of the Umayyads. You had two other main sources of opposition to the Umayyads. One was from non-Arab converts to Islam who felt like second-class citizens within the caliphate. And the third was from Shiites. Now think about it. What makes a Shiite be a Shiite? You're a Shiite if you feel that the successor of the prophet has to be descended directly in line from the family of the prophet. That is, from the line of Ali, who is Muhammad's adopted son. Anyone else is an illegitimate successor to the prophet. Now the Umayyads, they weren't even from the same clan as the prophet Muhammad. They weren't even from the Hashemite clan. They were from a clan that had resisted early Islamic evangelization. They were Meccans who defended idolatry and had to be suppressed by force and converted by force. 
So the idea of Umayyads claiming to be successors of the Prophet, this is something that, that causes Shiites to just be enraged and disgusted, right? So these three sources of opposition, right, the piety-minded Arabs, the non-Arab converts to Islam, and the Shiites, they coalesced in support of what we call the Abbasid Revolution. The Abbasid Revolution was very, very well managed by the clan of people who were descended from a, a companion of the Prophet named Abbas. Now, Abbas was a Hashemite. He was a member of the same clan, the same family group as the Prophet Muhammad. So his descendants, the Abbasids, ended up leading a revolution that defeated the Umayyads, slaughtered the Umayyad family in Damascus, and moved the capital of the Islamic world from Syria to Mesopotamia. They moved the capital of the Islamic world from Damascus to the new city that they founded, which became the, the capital of the whole Islamic empire, which became one of the most glorious and wealthy and populous cities of the Middle Ages, the greatest center of learning in all the Middle Ages, Baghdad, capital of the Abbasid Caliphate. So as this shift is taking place in the 750s, though, it causes another dramatic change, which is the severing of Spain from the Abbasid world. Now, the reason why this happens is because the Abbasids fail to completely exterminate the Umayyad family. One member of the Umayyad family escaped the slaughter of his household in Damascus. His name was Abd al-Rahman. Now, Abd al-Rahman, at great personal peril, snuck across Syria, across Mesopotamia, across Egypt, to western North Africa, and eventually made his way to Spain. Now, remember the factionalism, which we had mentioned earlier, that racked Islamic Spain. Abd al-Rahman found that he was uniquely equipped to end the factionalism and to be embraced by all the different competing forces in Islamic Andalus. Because he was an Umayyad, he had a connection to the, the previous reigning dynasty. Because he was an Arab and a Syrian, he was respected by the Syrian chiefs in Islamic Andalus. And because his mother had been a Berber slave, he looked like a Berber, and he was accepted by the Berber converts in Islamic Andalus. So he kind of united all the various factions and began an Umayyad dynasty in Spain that was distinct from the rest of the Islamic world ruled by the Abbasids. Now that's an important development. Of course, the Abbasids made an effort to reconquer Spain. The Abbasids sent a massive army which landed in Portugal in 763. And they came and they besieged Abd al-Rahman and his men, I think in the city of Beja, which is a Portuguese city. Now, they, they besieged him in there. And there was this massive army of thousands of Abbasid troops out there. Abd al-Rahman and his men were starving inside. And according to Islamic legend, what happened was this. Abd al-Rahman realized, after a few weeks of the siege, that the morale of his men was dropping. They were running out of food and supplies. And if the siege dragged on any longer, he would have no chance of expelling the, the Abbasids from Iberia. He would have no chance of resisting this Abbasid army. So what he did was he decided on a great moment of theater. Abd al-Rahman built a, a great flaming pyre in the middle of the square in this besieged city. He mustered his whole force, walked into the center of the square, and took his sword out of the scabbard. He took the scabbard and threw it in the fire. He then turned around and opened the gate, and suddenly all of his men caught the spirit of the occasion. They all took their swords out, threw their scabbards in the fire, and followed Abd al-Rahman in a screaming mob out the front gate of the city. The Abbasid troops outside had no idea what was going on. Suddenly you have this screaming mob of Umayyad soldiers coming at them, and the Abbasids were routed. Now, At the end of this rout, in accordance with tradition, the heads of all the Abbasid commanders were cut off, preserved in salt, 
and given name tags. Right? The heads with their name tags were then sent in boxes all the way to Baghdad to the Abbasid Khalif al-Mansur. And when al-Mansur received this box of heads, he said, thank God that there is an ocean between us. Right. Now, uh, there's a legend. There's a legend that al-Mansur, despite his enmity for Abd al-Rahman and the Umayyad family, there's a legend that, that he developed a tremendous respect for Abd al-Rahman. Now remember, Abd al-Rahman, despite the fact that he was an Umayyad, and therefore not a Hashemite, not a member of the Prophet's clan, he was a member of the Prophet's tribe, the Quraysh. And so al-Mansur, according to legend, he said to his courtiers one time, these sycophants that sit around and just tell the caliph how great he is, he said to his courtiers, who deserves the title of the falcon of the Quraysh? And they said, oh, you do, you do, oh, you do. And he said, no, you idiots, not me. I'm not the falcon. Who's the falcon of the Quraysh? And some of them, they suggested other figures. They suggested uh, Muawiyah, the founder of the Umayyad Caliphate, Omar and Uthman from among the Rashidun. Right? They suggested these various great figures from Islamic history. And he said, no, no, no. Al-Mansur said, no. The falcon of the Quraysh is Abd al-Rahman, who escaped by his cunning the spearheads of the lances and the blades of the swords, who after wandering solitary through the deserts of Asia and Africa, had the boldness to seek his fortune without an army in lands unknown to him beyond the sea. Having naught to rely on save his own wits and perseverance, he nonetheless humiliated his proud foes, exterminated rebels, organized cities, mobilized armies, secured his frontiers against the Christians, founded a great empire, and reunited under his scepter a realm which seemed already parceled out among others. No man before him ever did such deeds. Muawiyah rose to his stature through the support of Omar and Uthman, whose backing allowed him to overcome difficulties, Abd al-Malik, the Umayyad Caliph, because of a previous appointment, and myself, the commander of the faithful, through the struggle of my kin and the solidarity of my partisans. But Abd al-Rahman did it alone, with the support of none other than his own judgment, depending on no one but his own resolve. And indeed, Abd al-Rahman's personal genius resulted in the founding of a stable, unified government for Islamic Spain, that would be independent of the broader Islamic world and would be a strong bulwark against any effort at Christian reconquest for centuries to come. And we'll have to finish the story next week, but thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. McGuire, for a very enlightening presentation. We're going to take our usual break. Contemporary Spain seems to associate itself or to sympathize with its Roman legacy and its Catholic legacy, although distressingly, increasingly less so. Mm -hmm. But it seems to have kind of ignored the Visigothic legacy. Perhaps you could speak to why that is the case? Well, I, I could throw out a few guesses as to why that's the case. I, I think the, the Visigothic legacy as such is problematic because Vis Visigothic Spain wasn't around for a very long time. And uh, the legacy is problematic because the Visigoths were Arians, and then once they become Catholic, it's less than a century and a half later that Visigothic Spain disappears. The Visigoths themselves, in a certain sense, were, were very proud of Spain's Roman legacy. 
And that's true of barbarians generally in late antiquity. This was true of Franks, it was true of Ostrogoths, it was true even to a certain extent of Vandals. They themselves saw Roman culture and late antique culture as being superior to their own culture in, in many ways. And in, in contemporary Spain, I, I just don't know that they would look at Visigothic Spain and see a lot that they would identify with. You know, I, I think precisely because Visigothic Spain, it, it's the sort of brief episode in Spanish history that you know, disappears. And then you have a new Spain that's forged through very complicated processes through the course of what we call the Reconquista. You don't really have uh, something that can be really called Spain until you get to the 16th century. It's not even in the time of Ferdinand and Isabella that, that you can really speak of there being a Spain the way that we speak of Spain in modern times. It's really not till the time of Charles V. Modern Spain, it's this curious thing. It's the product of a very complex period of historical development, and it's a period of historical development that doesn't really begin until long after Visigothic Spain had disappeared. Right? Uh, so do, do modern Spaniards think of themselves as latter-day Goths or something like that? I, no, you know, no I, I don't think too many people do. The, the first movement of historical scholarship that was really sympathetic to barbarians, I think, was in the 19th century, in the age of nationalism. Right? And, and you had, in the age of nationalism, this, particularly among the Germans, this desire to um, kind of write a new narrative of the fall of the Western Empire. And in accordance with the racial theories that were in vogue in the 19th century, the new narrative of the fall of the Western Empire is basically that you had this influx of fresh blood from the master race or something like that and made everything better. And, uh, of course, nobody buys that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know. In terms of modern-day Spaniards, I, I can sort of see why they, they don't see very much of a, an attraction about identifying themselves as Goths. They'd much rather identify themselves with something successful, which is either Roman Spain, which, I mean, anything Roman, you can't really deny its attraction and its cachet, or for that matter, with the Spain of, of the early modern period, the Golden Age. Thank you for coming, Professor. What of the role of the troops of Justinian and the later Eastern Roman troops in pre Saracen Spain and their role? Oh, sure. Uh, no, it's interesting, right? You are right that there was a Byzantine enclave in Spain that was created by the, uh, the, con the conquest of Justinian. That's actually where Isidore of Seville was born. Uh, he was born in Cartagena. Uh, he, his family moved to Seville, which was in the Visigothic portion of Spain uh, when he was young. But the, the, the problem is that the, the Eastern Roman Empire found it very hard to defend and to maintain control of their Spanish enclave. So that, that enclave around Cartagena, it, it's not even clear how long it lasts or ultimately how much of an area the Byzantines really controlled there. Uh, I think that, that's something that's really disputed. And um, it's, it, it's sort of a brief but notable period, right, in which you had an extension of, of the Eastern Roman Empire that included Spain. Now, the Byzantines, they would have a hard enough time holding on to Italy, let's say, right? Justinian's successors had a rough, rough time trying to hold on to Italy in the face of pressure from the Lombards, and Spain just kind of, it, it's just too far away. Would you say that Islam was rather in control maybe since that early 8th century up until 1492? Was there any time when, when they weren't? Oh, yeah, okay. So we'll, we'll get to s some more of these details next week. But basically, um, the situation could be summarized. If you were to summarize it in a few sentences, what you'd say is that in the 8th century, between 711 and the mid-750s, 
you have a, a kind of a gradual consolidation of Islamic control over Spain. There were still a lot of Visigothic chiefs running around who made various treaties, some of which we have. But then once you have the establishment of the new Umayyad emirate in Cordoba under Abd al-Rahman I, then you have a, a much more serious state-like edifice that's created by the Muslims in Spain, uh, where you, you no longer have in semi-independent Visigothic chiefs running around anymore. You have a real emirate, right, where he's able to build roads and collect taxes and uh, you know, rebuild cities and aqueducts and things like that. So then the, the Umayyad emirate there, it lasts until, well, they call it an emirate until the 10th century, when you have Abd al-Rahman III changes it to a caliphate. Right, which is a much more exalted title. He actually reasserts the Umayyad claim to be successors of the Prophet uh, in the 920s. And then, uh, but the, the Umayyad state lasts only until 1031, and it completely collapses. And so what you have then from 1031 until the 1080s is a period where Islamic Spain was divided among countless little kingdoms, little independent emirates called taifas. It's in the age of the taifas that the Christian kingdoms begin to make some progress. Then in 1080, the Taifas themselves are conquered by the Almoravids. And so the Almoravids kind of gain the upper hand. Then the Almoravids themselves are conquered by the Almohads. The Almohads are defeated in 1212 at Las Navas de Tolosa. So after 1212, the vast majority of the Iberian Peninsula is Christian. After 1212, the only thing that's left of Islamic Iberia is a little rump state uh, that throughout the 13th century they lose important cities. Cordova, Jaén, all of these southern cities uh, fall into Castilian hands in the 13th century. So in, in the 14th century, you're left with this tiny little thing called uh, the Kingdom of Granada. Right? Tiny little thing. It was a vassal state of Castile. They could have gotten rid of it at any time they wanted to. Uh, it wasn't until the 1490s that they decided, yeah, let's get rid of it. Right. Father. During the period of Muslim dominance of Spain, was there an, an influx of converts from Christianity to Islam? Tremendous influx of converts from Christianity to Islam. Actually, um, Spain gives us an interesting laboratory for looking at how the church gets choked under Islamic law. I think we, we see this especially in episodes in the 9th century where you have Christian martyrs in Cordova. There was a saint named St. Saint Eulogius in Cordova in the middle of the 9th century who started encouraging Christians to seek martyrdom kind of aggressively. Seeking martyrdom is easy under Islamic law. If, uh, if, if you're a Christian, all, all you have to do is go out in the street and say Muhammad's not a real prophet. You know, uh, that, that Muhammad's body was eaten by dogs uh, and that, that Christ is divine or something like that. So people start doing this. Right? and becoming martyred. Now, now why is St. Eulogius encouraging this kind of behavior? Because St. Eulogius realizes that for the church to continue to cooperate with the strictures placed on it by Islamic law will result in the gradual but inevitable decline of the church. Now, the reasons for this are, are several. First of all, you have the, this infamous rule against apostasy in Islamic law. What a lot of people don't know is that Islamic law regards you as a Muslim if, say, only one of your ancestors is a Muslim. Right? So the children of any intermarriage and anyone who's descended from intermarriage is considered a Muslim under Islamic law. So when you start having intermarriage, 
And you always start having intermarriage after the Islamic conquest sweeps through anywhere, whether it's Egypt, Syria, North Africa, or Spain. You start having intermarriage. Then all of a sudden you have these situations where you have Christian people who have seven Christian great-grandparents and one Islamic great-grandparent. And under Islamic law, they're a Muslim. And so if you're a practicing Christian, practicing the religion of seven-eighths of your great-grandparents, you're considered an apostate under Islamic law. Okay, so it becomes a tremendous problem. There's this gradual attrition under the pressure of Islamic law. The other thing is taxation, right? The, the taxes become a little bit oppressive after a while. Uh, and so you have Christian people who want to escape this oppressive taxation becoming Muslims. You have the, the pressure imposed by intermarriage. And so eventually, gradually, over time, even though they can sit there and say, you have your churches, you have your basilicas, you have your monasteries, right? Even though they can sit there and say that, you have a gradual and inevitable process through which the life of the church is choked. Public evangelization, proselytism, absolutely out of the question. Saying certain things in public, professing your faith in public in certain ways, absolutely out of the question. And then for certain people, even being a Christian is out of the question if you're descended in any way from intermarriage, right? Because a lot of times people imagine the Muslims as coming in, conquering a place, and then forcing everybody to convert right away. And that doesn't, it doesn't really happen that way. It doesn't happen that way in Egypt or Syria either. When you have the great siege of Constantinople in 717, 718, a lot of the crews of the Umayyad fleet desert, and they, they take the boats and go to Constantinople because they were from Egypt and Tunisia and places like that, and so they were Christians still. Right? Now, those lands had been ruled by the Muslims for 60, 70 years at that point, but the majority, the vast majority of people were still Christian. But it's a slow process because of the strictures imposed on non-Islamic communities by, by Sharia law, right? It's a slow process. You get down to today when Christians are only 1% of the population of Egypt or something like that. Or I even look at the peril of the Patriarchate of Constantinople today, where they're not even sure if there's going to be a Patriarchate of Constantinople a generation or two from now due to the pressure of the secular tolerant Turks, right? So I don't know if that answers the question, but... Dr. McGuire, you mentioned uh, at the beginning the tradition of the martyrdom of St. James and the bringing of his relics mm -hmm. to Spain. Could you speak on that tradition? What are the details? How do we come to the, believe that the bones are, are actually there in St. James? What's the well, story? Okay, the details vary from one chronicle to another. The first time we run into it, okay, it's in Carolingian chronicles. Wallafrid Strabo is one, and Notker the Stammerer is another, right? These two Carolingian chronicles, and they both recount the, you know, the different versions of the story. I think that there's one version of the story where the body of St. James was miraculously encased in a rock. Okay. Then St. James's disciples, the ones who had been instructed by St. James himself in Jerusalem, they took, they took this rock uh, that, that had his body in it, placed it on a ship, and sailed it to Spain. Right. There's another version where it's more like the translation of the Holy House of Loretto, where, where you have angels involved and air travel, uh, you know, bringing the relics to Spain. So there's, there's different versions of it that pop up in medieval chronicles, but what they all have in common is there's some kind of translation involved and that there are miraculous occurrences which attest to the validity of these relics. In other words, the fact that you had these attested miracles is what demonstrates that these are the true relics. Right? I think that's what sometimes people miss in um, medieval debates over which relic is the true relic, is that the, the litmus test for a true relic was miracles. 
Okay, and, and the miraculous translation of these bones was, was presented as prima facie evidence that the relics are truly the relics of, of St. James. Okay. Now, it's interesting. We see uh, devotion to St. James in 12th century Spain become very important because St. James was presented in 12th century chronicles, not just as an apostle, not just as some kind of distant patron of Spain from the past, but he was presented as Santiago Matamoros, right? St. James who kills Muslims. That's what that means, Santiago Matamoros. There's a famous statue uh, that I think was recently removed from the cathedral in, in Toledo because it was considered offensive. And it was a statue of uh, St. James the Apostle with a sword chopping the head off. He got like, you know, seven-eighths of the way through this guy's neck. And you have the Muslim head kind of coming off. And it's like, <laughs> you know. But that's, that's the idea, Santiago Matamoros. Now, the, the legend of Santiago Matamoros, obviously there were no Muslims in the first century AD. So, so where do you get this idea of Santiago Matamoros? Uh, it comes from uh, the legendary battle of Clavijo, which is it's a battle that's it's first mentioned in a 12th century chronicle, but it allegedly took place in the 9th century. So a lot of historians are, are skeptical that the Battle of Clavijo ever happened. They're skeptical that it's anything but an invention of a 12th century chronicler. But uh, according to the mythical Battle of Clavijo legend, right, you have Ramiro I, king of the Asturias, who was doing battle with the Muslims, and he was losing until St. James shows up and starts just slaughtering these Muslims. So you get St. James popping, you know, coming down out of the sky with his sword and you know, just slaughtering the Muslims, and then the Christians go on to victory and all of that. So uh, St. James was made in the 12th century into a patron of Christian crusading. But the, the first historic episodes of St. James' assistance of Christian kings were located back in the 9th century by medieval chroniclers. Right. Thank you very much, Doctor. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.